And in that time, we're going to invite you to open up your Bibles, please, to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy, chapter 6. Today is the last sermon in this series. 1 Timothy, chapter 6. I'll be reading a very short passage, verse 17 to 19. 1 Timothy, chapter 6, verse 17 to 19. I'm reading the ESV version. Um, yeah, just a reminder as I read this, that's this, this is the word of God. Verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Verse 19, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, for those that don't know me, uh, my name is Daniel, and I see some new faces, which is always really encouraging to see, but I also do see a lot of returning faces as well. So if you are returning after a bit of a hiatus, uh, welcome back. Uh, it's good to have you. Um, like Peter said, uh, today is our last uh, sermon on First Timothy. Um, can you believe we've been in this book for 11 weeks? So um, we're going to finish it off uh, today. Uh, but, but, but before we do, let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks that you did not leave us alone. You are a God who sent us your son, the word, who became flesh. But not only that, but you gave us uh, the word of God so that we might know how we ought to live. Um, we believe that all of scripture is good for teaching and reproof and training in righteousness. So as we read these verses, I pray, Father, that you might inform us in the mind, but also transform us in the heart uh, so that we might uh, live differently in our lives. Uh, we invite your spirit to fill all of us here uh, so that we might uh, act accordingly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so um, has everyone watched the movie Crazy Rich Asians? Um, I think many of you guys have. Maybe you guys haven't. It, it's, it's a good film. Like It's pretty funny. Um, I recommend you guys watch it um, if you haven't. Uh, but, but for those who haven't, it, it was a film that uh, was released in 2018. And it stars Constance Wu and Michelle Yeoh, um, if you know those two actresses. Um, it follows uh, a story of a Chinese-American woman. Uh, her name is Rachel Chu. And she travels to meet her boyfriend, Nick's family. And as she goes to travel to meet her boyfriend's family, she's surprised to find out that Nick's family is actually among the wealthiest and the richest in Singapore. Uh, and in one of the sort of early uh, scenes of the movie, uh, Eleanor, who is the mother of Nick, um, she and her friends are gathered together uh, in her house, which is like a four-story, multi-level, like, super mansion. And can anyone sort of remember what they were doing? I mean, the, the, I guess the photo is a bit, of, bit of a dead giveaway, but it's actually quite hilarious. They're in that sort of, uh, I guess, huge house, and they're actually doing a Bible study. Um, it kind of throws you off. You're like, oh, where did this come from? Um, they're, they're essentially doing growth groups. If you, if you are in a growth group, just imagine that. Um, the scene is made even more hilarious because uh, Michelle Yeoh's character, so uh, Eleanor, she's reading Colossians 3, uh, chapter, uh, Col Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Does anyone remember what that says? 
seek the things that are above where Christ is, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And she's reading this all the while the group discussion actually veers into gossip about who this Rachel is, if she's good enough for Nick, if she's a good Christian girl. That's actually one of the things that one of the mums says. And all the while, flanked by maids, serving them morning tea, surrounded by riches and worldly wealth, you kind of see that and you're kind of like, ooh, something about that scene seems a little bit off and wrong, especially as a Christian as you, as you watch that. So then it begs the question for us, can wealthy people be Christians? Can wealthy people be Christians? See, wealth and Christianity is a topic that is <laughs> controversial to say the least, right? People everywhere have an opinion about it, whether you're in the church or whether you're outside of the church, whether you're religious or irreligious, you have an opinion about that. And because the range of opinions are so vast and so diverse, even in our church, I believe, when it comes to wealth and faith, we tend to like kind of not bring it up at all. You know what I mean? It's like the elephant in the room. We don't really talk about it. it it's some would say sort of too sensitive to talk about. If there was a taboo topic um, in the church, I think one of them would be this, wealth and Christianity, money and faith. But would it surprise you to hear that the Lord Jesus talked about money more than he talked about heaven and hell combined. In the Bible, in the entire Bible, we are given more instructions about money, 2,000 verses in fact, more than 2,000 verses, more than anything else. Money is a big deal, not just in worldly terms, but in the spiritual realm as well. We might often try to divorce our faith and our finances, but God sees them as inseparable. If you joined us a couple of weeks back, you would remember that Pastor Peter preached a talk kind of related to this, right? Those who desire to be wealthy, um, beware of the love of money. Um, and he said, basically, find contentment in the Lord. Be thankful for what you have. It was a great talk. It's a pretty straightforward command. But then I think after listening to that, some of us might have come to the conclusion, maybe we can think maybe a little bit wrongly about wealth at that point. And what I mean by that is it almost seems to imply that wealth and Christianity shouldn't be mixed at all. Be content with what you have. Don't desire to be rich. But then on the flip side, you might be thinking, okay, then the wealthy, the already wealthy in our church, the already successful, they're doing something wrong in their faith. We can tend to secretly judge them and maybe even exclude them in the faith. And I think that's why at the end of the letter, Paul goes back to the topic of wealth. At the end of the letter, he kind of thinks, oh, wait, I forgot. And then he adds, this, uh, adds these uh, few verses in just before he finishes. It's kind of like a, a quick PS, by the way, kind of thing, uh, before he uh, wraps up the letter. And he answers the question, can a wealthy person be a Christian? He answers it, I mean, simply put, with a yes. Absolutely, wealthy people can be Christians. No one, nowhere does Paul say that those who are already wealthy should somehow become poor overnight 
all be excluded from the faith. But he does do this. He, he gives specific instructions to the wealthy. He talks directly to the wealthy, so to speak. A final word to the already wealthy in the church. And most of us are not super wealthy. You know, we're not the Jeff Bezoses and, you know, um, the Tim Cooks of the world, etc. But, but there are people in this church who are well off. Many of us are well off uh, compared to the average uh, Western world. Uh, even in the average salary comparison to Sydney. I, I think this is an important thing, uncomfortable but important uh, message to hear. So I'll try my best to uh, graciously uh, walk us through it. There's, there's three instructions, uh, valuable instructions in the form of warning. So let's, let's kick us off with the first. Wealth can make us self-important. So let's look at verse uh, 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. That's a good word, haughty. Um, one Christian journalist writes about his experience visiting uh, one of these Singaporean Christian communities, uh, Singaporean churches. He notes that upon entering, he immediately noticed the class difference that existed in the church. He saw many foreign domestic workers who were in his eyes, predominantly sort of Southeast Asian, Filipino in background. And then he saw the really affluent, uh, Gucci bag-wearing Singaporean Chinese. Both were in the room, and both were worshipping Jesus together. It's actually quite interesting, because these Singaporean Chinese people, they, they might have actually hired these foreign domestic workers as maids in their houses. But this image of sort of the rich and the not-so-rich worshipping God in a church service, that, that image is very helpful for us in understanding what kind of context Paul was trying to instruct Timothy in. The Ephesian church was basically like the Singaporean church. They had heaps of poor people and heaps of rich people, all saved under the banner of Jesus and worshipping God together in that city. And I'm sure, I'm sure that those who were of the wealth, wealthy upper class in that church, I'm sure they found it difficult to love those who were not of their particular class. Because wealth can have a peculiar effect on the human soul. It can make us think we are just a little bit better than those who are not as wealthy. I mean, I'm saying the quiet part out loud, but isn't it? Isn't it true? One pastor says it really helpfully. More possessions, more pride. And let me just note this. Unfortunately, the way that some church communities treat the wealthy differently to those who aren't in the church, it, it doesn't help this case. You know, sometimes churches can give more attention and, and more credit and more spiritual sort of authority to those who are wealthy than those who are not. Have you ever been part of a church like that? You know, churches where elders sometimes get elected, not necessarily based on their spiritual maturity, but on their financial prosperity. You know, the rich, rich uh, donors in church, they're treated with a bit more respect. They're, they're treated with a bit more sort of sensitivity 
than those who aren't able to give as much. And yeah, I get it. Though it might be understandable from a human perspective. It actually doesn't help at the end of the day the spiritual maturity of those wealthy men and women. It doesn't. Because this kind of behavior feeds into the feeling that the one who gets the most attention, the one whose voice is most important, is, well, the most important of us all. Material wealth can make us feel haughty. And that's not a word that we use uh, from day to day, so I'll just contextualize it. In other words, self-important. Pretty much that means self-important. Wealth can make us feel self-important. And the way we treat those with wealth inadvertently encourages this self-perception. See, I'm glad to be a Christian because one of the foundational beliefs of Christianity is the advocating of the equality of all people. It's a beautiful idea. It's a beautiful truth that all of us are equal, made in the image of God. And because of that point alone, we are far more valuable than anyone can ever measure. Everyone is of limitless value. But wealth, you see, can lead us to think that those with wealth are just a little bit more valuable than anyone else. Why does wealth do this? I think, ultimately, at the heart of every wealthy person that is struggling and, and wrestling with pride is the sense that it's a representation, so wealth is a representation of their work. In other words, they feel like they owned it. The job I have, the career I have, the house I bought, the car I drive, my incredible share portfolio, my incredible passive income, I've done it. I've achieved it. It's mine. And yet, Paul addresses this thought with one simple sentence. God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. The wealthy are wealthy because God has provided it to them. See, the test you needed to take to get into your high-paying job. Sure, you might have studied your eyes out. But the questions that were in the test, for example, the marker who marked your test, your health on the day of the test. I can go on and on. So much of what led us to be wealthy, it was not in our power to control. And in God's kindness and generosity, He gives these things to us. And we need to kind of sit on that reality for a second because I think that our church's healthy, I think it is healthy, healthy rejection of the prosperity gospel, which is the idea that you can bargain for wealth to God. If you do X, Y, Z, then God is obliged to give you, uh, you know, health, wealth, and prosperity. 
we, we reject that as a church. Amen to that. But by rejecting that idea of the prosperity gospel, we actually have a weak theology about prosperity. We have thrown the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. And we often label all prosperity as either evil or kind of like neutral, like you don't really talk about it. It has nothing to do with faith. But, but that, that is not the case. The Bible affirms and confirms that material prosperity can be a gift from God. Material prosperity can be a gift from God. And let me just rest on that word gift. It's a gift. You didn't bargain for it. You didn't strong arm God in giving that to you. You didn't do X, Y, Z so God gave you, you know, X, Y, Z. It's not deserved. It's not earned. It's not bargained for. It's given freely by God to you. See, if our wealth is not because we are great, not because we deserve it, not because we have earned it or worked for it, but because God alone has provided for it, shouldn't that actually change the way that we view ourselves and others as a result when it comes to wealth? It, it should have nothing to do about how valuable you are in comparison to the other people. That should make us think less of our own fundamental value in relationship with other people. See, material prosperity, when properly viewed, should get us looking more at God than other people or ourselves. Wealth in and of itself is not good or not, it's not good nor is it bad. It's how we view it. And here's the reality. The problem with wealth in the scriptures is actually a problem with us. Because time and time and again, if you read it, the, uh, the Christian scriptures, you find that human beings are really, really good at something. You know what that is? Taking God's good things and then mucking it up. That's pretty much the story of the scriptures. We take God's good gifts and we just either squander it or corrupt it and change it and make it into sin. Wealth is the same thing. Wealth is a good thing, and yet we make it into an idol. We make it into an idol rather than using it as a tool to make God great. Get this. I think the worst way that wealth feeds our sense of self-importance is when wealthy churchgoers, when successful, ambitious churchgoers, implicitly or even explicitly, belittle other people who aren't as wealthy, successful, or ambitious. Those who have a, a truly, a truly sinful relationship with their wealth proudly judge other people who aren't as rich, who aren't as successful, who aren't as motivated as they are. The, the ultimate insult to God from a person who has been given wealth by God, think about it, is to use that wealth to club other people with it, to treat them less than a brother or sister, to avoid them at church, ignore them entirely, I think that is the final form 
if you will, of the wealthy, haughty churchgoer. And I believe that this is a word of warning for many of us. Because when I look at our church, we are a church full of young professionals, highly ambitious people. We work in well-to-do, respectable uh, professions. And I can tell you, I, I, know, I know this because our conversations tend to revolve around that. Where do you work? What firm do you work? What promotion did you get? What's your bonus? What mortgage rate did you lock out? The, the, the conversations that we have in this church reveal that, that we are above average in, in the wealthometer, if you will. But, brothers and sisters, none of us are better than those around us and outside of this church who aren't as rich, who can't afford to you know, get a mortgage, who, who, can't, who haven't been as ambitious as you or me. All that we are, our talents, our accolades, our career trajectory, everything that contributes to our worldly sense of wealth, it's a gift that God gives us. Not to make you look great, but to make your Lord look great. Wealth can be a gift. The second point is, wealth can make us self-reliant. Verse 17, let's continue on. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. If a person has a great deal of wealth, either in the form of liquid funds, spendable money, or investments, or passive income, whatever you want to call it, uh, it's very easy to think that you are in a safe spot. If your net worth is, you know, $10 million, for example, you can think that you're in a pretty safe spot in life, can't you? It's easy to think that life is good when you have wealth, when the house is big, the car is, you know, really good, when the hotels that you go on are all five-star, and, and I'm not bagging on these things. If you, if you have a nice car, that's awesome. Can I ride in it? You know, it's, it's a great, it's great. But, but the point of that is, let me ask you, friend with the big house, the nice car, and the five-star hotel getaways, what if all that is taken away one day? Would you think that life is just as good, just as fair? Would you think that God is just as good. I think it's so obvious of a point that Paul doesn't even bother giving us a detailed sort of explanation of that. Of course, it will be hard to think that God is good in that moment. Riches are uncertain and therefore unreliable. Live long enough and you'll find out. Am I right? Riches aren't reliable. They're not. Think about it. It only takes one economic depression. It only takes one bad business deal or one bad crypto purchase. All of that, your wealth, can disappear overnight. It, it really can. Th- there, and again, this is, I talked about this before, but there are so many factors 
out wealth generating pursuit that are completely outside of our control, right? They're outside of control, you can't control it. See, we often love hearing stories, like success stories about people who make it in the wealth department. You know, the story of, I start, you know, they started a you know, firm in a, a company in a garage and now you know, they make smartphones and you know, talk about you know, Apple. We, we love hearing stories about Steve Jobs or Bill Gates. But for every one of those, there's a hundred other stories of failure. It, it's a reality that I think no one is willing to think about for too long. And let's be honest, we, like, it's pretty depressing if you keep thinking about it for too long, right? But let's think about it nowadays, yeah? Our wealth is on shaky, unreliable ground, isn't it? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Job. Even now, our wealth is on unshakable ground. But let's say, hypothetically, that you know, you're all good, that you stay wealthy, that you hit 80, 90, 100, and you're a wealthy man or a wealthy woman. What happens next? Think about eternity. Job says it best. Naked we come into the world, and naked we return. In 1922... Archaeologist Howard Carter made the discovery of a century. You might, you might know it. He found a pharaoh's tomb. The pharaoh's name was Tutankhamun. It's a hard one. Tutankhamun. And it was crazy because it was the first time someone discovered a tomb of a pharaoh, the king of Egypt, that had never been disturbed. No grave robber got to this particular tomb. And in it, he could scarcely believe and describe the amount of wealth that was packed into that little chamber. Gold, silver, precious jewels, you name it. Even, they even found a full-sized chariot. I don't know why that's in there. His triple-plated gold sarcophagus was estimated to be worth $2 million alone. He was literally, at the time of his death, the richest, the wealthiest person to ever live. And he packed all of this wealth into his grave. Do you think he saw any of that in the next life? I think the reality is we live as if we can be like Tutankhamun. A person with much wealth can live as if they will take their earnings, their share portfolio, the expensive car, into the next life. But Jesus himself says it's just not true. He actually addresses this in the parable of the appropriately named rich fool. This person was a rich man, wealthy, blessed by God with material riches. And what does he do with it? You know, story... He just invests it for more. He's only interested about making more and growing more just for the sake of security. And then in Luke 12, 20, God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? See, no matter how wealthy we get in this life, none of us can take that wealth into the next 
no matter how much we work to get as much money as possible in this life, we can't take it in death. And again, don't mishear me. The application isn't, oh, well, I'll just get rid of my wealth now then. What's the point? It doesn't mean that all wealthy people at our church should throw it away and you know, become poor. Material wealth in all of its sort of different amounts, like I said before, is given to us by God as a gift. We have to believe in that. He's good. He's a good, kind, and gracious God. But with what material wealth we have, whether it's in the millions or whether it's we live paycheck to paycheck, the question that we have to ask ourselves is, do we solely rely on that money for security and comfort? Think of it this way. For those of us here who are less wealthy, it's definitely a little bit easier to rely on God, isn't it? If you live paycheck to paycheck and you just don't know where you're going to get the money to pay the rent, and then money comes your way. You will be more thankful to God. You're not going to rely on that money. You're going to rely on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So then this is the great test for those who are wealthy in the church, for those of us who don't live paycheck to paycheck. Will your ultimate sense of security be found in God? God who is the source of your wealth. God who can just as easily take it away in a heartbeat. And Jesus actually talks about this in one of his other parables. He says, Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they have entrusted much, they will demand the more. Basically, the Bible is saying when God blesses the wealthy with great wealth, it's a gift, yes, but it is also a test. A test that is all the more harder and all the more greater. You know, isn't it quite ironic? Um, Jesus flips the concept of wealth and comfort upside down. We tend to think of comfort in direct proportion to our wealth, don't we? When we have more money, we say we're comfortable. You know, whenever you kind of talk to, I guess, a younger sort of aspiring uh, university student or someone who just entered in the workforce, you kind of ask them, like, where do they want to be? And they're like, I want to be, and they know they, know they can't say, I, I want to be rich because that's, you know, against the Bible. They go, I want to be comfortable. But wh what do they really mean by that? It means they want to get wealthy at the end of the day. But Jesus flips that upside down. He goes, okay, you want to be wealthy. That actually will cause you less comfort will give you less comfort, will cause a, more, cause a bit more discomfort because it's harder. The test is greater. To the world, more wealth gives us more comfort and less responsibility. But for followers of Jesus, more wealth means less comfort and more responsibility. It means that the wealthy Christian works a bit harder than Christians who are less wealthy to make sure that he or she relies on God, not put their hopes in the uncertainty of riches, on God, who is the giver. We come to the third point, and this is, I think, the most practical of the three. So in our first, we said that wealth can make us feel self-important, and so we should start looking at wealth as an undeserved, unmerited gift from God, right? So self-importance, gift. 
In the second point, we said that wealth can make us feel self-reliant. So we should start to look at it as a test of God, whether we find security in things or in God. That's point two. Now, the final point, we're going to look at how wealth can make us feel self-centered. And we'll talk about how to counter that too. But let me uh, begin this point off with a story. I remember uh, back at our old church, I was talking to a person, and, and that person was really excited because that person graduated, uh, and uh, they were sort of figuring out what firm to go to. And at the end of the day, they picked the firm that paid them the most. And they were really excited about it. And they were sharing about it to me, and then I kind of like pushed back a little because I, I, I felt a bit uncomfortable. I was like, hey, just be careful of the love of money, right? neutral sort of, I guess, advice, just be careful. And then immediately she pushed back and said, I don't have the love of money. I don't, I don't have it. You misunderstand me, Daniel. I, I don't love money. I just love what it can buy me. And like, that person said it, and then I heard it, and there was this like awkward sort of like three-second pause, because I think that person heard herself, and then I was like, yeah. Um, but like, we laugh about that, but to be fair on the person, like, we all think like that, don't we? Like, we, 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 we look at the passage in First Timothy, uh, the love of money is the root of all evil, and we go, oh, I don't love money, I just want to be comfortable. I don't love money, I just want to uh, look after my children and my wife. I don't love money, I just, I just want to look after myself and, you know, pay for that five-star, you know, resort to, you know, the Maldives. We, we, we kind of think like that, but as we do, I think the more and more we think about money in that way, that actually makes us more and more sort of self-centered. It's kind of like a, like a cycle. We feed into our sense of self-centeredness because the first thing that we think of, I mean, I don't know about you, you might be holier than me, but like when I get my first paycheck, I think about how I can spend it on myself. Am I really evil? No, right? Like, we, we do. We, we think of it when we get money, we think about how we can spend it on ourselves. And so for this reason, Paul gives a very specific and simple command. And I was talking about this with a couple of blokes this week. And we, we, we talked about it, and we're like, yeah, like this command is very simple. It's just really difficult. All right? So I'm going to help us sort of think through it so that it becomes less difficult, hopefully. So... Uh, What's the, what's the remedy? Well, do good. That's what Paul says. Do good, be rich in good works, be generous, ready to share, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Okay, so there are two things that we can get away with this. Uh, we'll spend most of our time on the first. The first is this. And this is a simple one. Wealthy people, if you are wealthy, you have a unique an incredible privilege to do good in a way that not-so-wealthy people just simply cannot. Think of it this way. Um, if, you, if you want a book uh, to read after this that kind of dives more deeper into this, this book is fantastic. Uh, but in any case, Randy Alcon says this, God prospers me not to raise my standard of living but to raise my standard of giving. God prospers me not to raise my standard of living, but to raise my standard of giving. 
In other words, the wealthy Christian is uniquely positioned to help other people. Not just in their treatment of other people, but in a way that really makes a difference in their lives. When a material need is placed before our church community, the wealthy are given opportunity to step into that space. That, that's a unique opportunity. Often I get asked uh, by people in our church who are legitimately and bravely wrestling with how to use their wealth for good, how to manage their wealth and fight back against greed and self-centeredness. Well, a simple way to start is to be generous with the wealth you have. A rich person who has encountered the rich love of God, the rich life-giving grace of Jesus, this is the good news here, is no longer a slave to their material wealth. If you are a wealthy Christian, that is what you are freed from. You are free to use your material wealth to demonstrate the kindness of Jesus in other people's lives. How can a wealthy Christian make sure they are resisting the pull of self-centeredness? Well, I can say the answer is simple. Practice generosity. Not just in giving time or giving advice, although those things are great, but with your money. Wealth, like I said, is given to you by, uh, as a gift from God. But it's a gift that is given to be a gift to, be, uh, to others. Does that make sense? Okay, so I'll, I'll break it down like this. Money can be served as a container or a conduit. Okay, so container or conduit. Does the gift of wealth stop with you? You thank God, praise be to Jesus, and then you kind of take it and stop it. Do you take it as a container and you just kind of hoard it? Or do you view the gift of wealth as a means to pass it on to other people? A conduit, a channel, if you will. This is the clearest and most practical advice for the rich, for the wealthy Christian. Be generous with your wealth. Uh, where do we even start? Okay, well, I'll, I'll kick it off by giving us maybe two things. Practice regular giving. Okay, this is an awkward moment where I have to talk about this. Um, if you're a member of this church, give regularly to this church. If you're not a member of this church and you're just visiting, Find a church to call home and give regularly to that church. Give to kingdom work. Give regularly. Show me a person who gives a portion of their wealth regularly to the church, and I'll show you a person who is doing well in their God-given work. I'm not going to name them here because that kind of goes against the point that I made in the first point, but we have pretty well-off Christians in our church who quietly, regularly give every week or every month a percentage of their income to the work of the kingdom. They don't want recognition. They don't want praise. They do it as a demonstration that they are not bound by their wealth. They are the ones who are rich in good works. Another helpful way that a Christian pastor spoke on this topic that really helped me was to practice generous budgeting. Generous budgeting. In other words, consciously decide 
to set aside a percentage of your wealth to freely give to others. So what does that look like? For me, it looks like I have a, like a different savings account, my Combank sort of app, and then I deposit a percentage of my um, you know, uh, pay into that, and I kind of treat it as like not my own. I mean, to be fair, like the, the whole, you know, all, all the money I own is not my own, but, but you get the point, right? But that, that's really not my own. I, I don't touch it. Like, even when I'm desperate, I, I don't touch it, and, and I just let it grow. So that I can give it away without any pressure if the opportunity arises. So, for example, uh, if we end up eventually sending, let's say, a missionary from our church to a different country, I can say, yeah, I'll support you, bro. I'll support you, girl. I can say that because I have money that I have set aside and it's not mine. If a member of this church, let's say, just hits like rock bottom and loses everything and they really need financial help, then you have that pool to say, yeah, I'll help you. No worries. Regular giving, generous budgeting. And just very quickly, very quickly, we're almost there, guys. The second thing to notice is that Paul says that the wealthy who practice generosity are in their own way proving that they have taken hold of that which is truly life. Like I said, wealthy people can be Christians. Wealthy people, depending on how you view your wealth and how you use your wealth, you are actually using your wealth to take hold. Remember uh, Paul said this? Fasten? (laughs) Fasten? Last week? Fasten to the word of life. Fasten to your faith, right? Holding on to take hold of that which is truly life. A generous Christian who also happens to be wealthy is doing well on their faith. As I said in the beginning, the topic of money in Christianity is such a controversial and tricky thing to manage and talk about. Maybe at points where I said something, you're like, oh, I feel really uncomfortable. But I also can't deny this. When you look at the scriptures, money is talked about way too much for us to ignore. It's talked about way too much. In fact, I actually think it's talked about way too much because we tend to ignore it. Like, we kind of can't avoid the topic of money because when we read it, it's like half the time it's there in our face. So in today's passage, we, we've kind of given, uh, we've been given a glimpse of that. We've seen that wealth can have three negative effects. And you might have maybe noticed I kind of paired it with three positive, like thinking of it positively. So negatively, wealth can make us feel self-important, self-reliant, and self-centered, yeah? But positively, we've also seen that wealth, when properly approached, is a gift of God. It's a test from God and an opportunity for God. Wealth should not necessarily be frowned upon by the church, nor should it be celebrated in and of itself. We should rejoice, brothers and sisters, that God saves the poor, the middle class, and the wealthy. And He does. He really does. We should rejoice that He saves the wealthy too. Remember that passage in uh, the Gospels? It's easier for, it's, it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than a camel to go through the eye of a needle. We take that and we're like, oh, being rich, impossible. But at the end, what does he say? What is impossible for man is possible for God. So it is possible. And, it, and we see it 
Rich people do become Christians. And if you're that rich person, welcome, brother. Welcome, sister. If you're wealthy, if you're well-off, if you're comfortable, if you're in that tax bracket that, you know, you feel like you pay too much tax in, you know, that, that, that tax bracket, you are welcome in God's kingdom. That is good news. That is good news. The grace of God is for you. And one of the things that he does is he absolutely changes the way that you view your wealth. By being in God's kingdom, it changes the way that you view it. Money no longer serves you. Praise God for that. Your wealth actually serves God. And since money no longer serves you, you are free from money. You're free. You're free to serve others. You're free to use it for God. So let's stop shying away from thinking about wealth and faith, brothers and sisters. Jesus doesn't do it. Paul doesn't do it. Timothy doesn't do it. Money means something in our faith and to our faith. It's not inherently evil to be wealthy. Wealthy people can and are Christians. But money is not neutral either, is it? Wealth presents challenges and opportunities for us. Um, Back to Randy Alcorn. He sums it up actually really perfectly. And this is where I'll end. God comes right out and tells us why he gives us more money than we need. It's not so we can find more ways to spend it. It's not so we can indulge ourselves and spoil our children. It's not so we can insulate ourselves from needing God's provision. It's so we can give generously. When God provides more money, we often think, this is a blessing. Well, yes, but it will be just as scriptural to think this is a test. Gift, test, opportunity. Yeah? Let's pray. As the band gets ready, let's uh, quietly reflect on our own uh, worldly wealth and yeah, just respond in prayer to God. And, and if you are a Christian, I invite you to spend that time to lay it down before the Lord. To lay it down at the foot of Jesus, at the feet of Jesus, and just say, Lord, it, it's yours. You gave it to me as a gift, but it's also a test and an opportunity and help me to use it well. To not please myself, but to please you. Let's dedicate and declare in prayer that we are not bound or uh, emboldened or, or held down by our wealth, but that that wealth is a tool that we use to serve our real Lord and Master, the Lord Jesus. Let's spend uh, yeah, just some time just reflecting in prayer. Let's pray.
And secondly and finally, before we sing together, um, why don't we quickly pray for uh, those in our community that are wealthy, that are well off. Um, you might not know them, maybe you do know them. Uh, but if you know them and they are followers of Jesus, they need our prayer, right? It's hard. Like I said, the test is even greater for those with great wealth. And they need a greater measure of God's Spirit to help them along. So let's remember our brothers and sisters in prayer and ask God that He might help them to be good managers of the wealth that God has entrusted in their hands. Let's pray for our uh, wealthy brothers and sisters in our church. Let's pray.